0: Hey everyone, it's Amber Love from AmberUnmasked.com, and today I have the pleasure of talking with one of my favorite writers, Dwayne Swarzynski, who's uh, here on my coast for a change. Usually I have to schedule these things for, um, you know, West Coast people. So, Dwayne's here, and we're going to talk about all sorts of good things, like his comic book work and his novel work. So, Dwayne, welcome aboard.
1: Hey, Amber, thank you for having me uh, on the East Coast here.
0: Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, I know you travel over to, you know, the fame and fortunes that bring you to L.A., but...
1: Well, uh, not that often, and, you know, I would quibble with the fame and or fortune part of it. But, <laughs> you
0: know. Oh, you're modest.
1: Uh, no, not really.
0: <laughs> I know I know that you really have a bat cave filled, filled with billions of dollars of stuff.
1: No, it, Yeah, I have a cave, but it's like the basement of a row house in Philadelphia. That's my cave, which, you know, it's as unglamorous as you can get. But, you know, that's good for a writer. A writer should be miserable working somewhere in a, in a hole, you know.
0: That's true. Your mind. That's true. And, and, and drinking, of course. So, are you are you drinking right now?
1: You know, I'm I'm not. I, I'm kind of dropping the ball on that one because I'm I'm kind of fighting a cold. So I'm feeling like I really shouldn't push that myself over the edge with a drink. Are you?
0: Yeah, I, oh. I did that just for you.
1: Oh man, sorry. But enjoy enjoy it for me.
0: Yeah. I, well, it's okay. It's um, I, I'm experimenting a little with the flavor vodkas, which as a Polish girl, I used to find as an abomination to the vodka world. <laughs> right. So I I tried this uh, vanilla vodka and added it to my coffee, and it's just not really working.
1: Yeah. What are you supposed to add to coffee? Is it usually you're supposed to add what?
0: There's all sorts of, you know, versions. Yeah, Yeah, like either Baileys or or whiskey. Bourbon, yeah. Um, Or, you know, foofy stuff like Amaretto.
1: Right. And vodka seems like it doesn't mix well with coffee. It wouldn't seem... Mix
0: well. It's okay. It's just that this particular stuff is supposed to be vanilla flavored, and it has no vanilla that I can detect.
1: Yeah. well, so, drink more, you won't notice it anymore.
0: Pretty, pretty much. Well, the reason that I did this today was because the last interview, when I talked to, uh, I think friend of yours, Jonathan Mayberry. Oh
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I had a, a wonderful screwdriver at my side while I did that, and I thought it was one of my best interviews. So I said <laughs> I need to continue this.
1: It must. It limbers your brain up a little bit. You feel a little more loose and you know relaxed. That's gotta help,
0: right? So, but you you have changed your favorite drink recently, right? You're you're into a particular bourbon now, is that kind it? Kind
1: of a, a rye rye whiskey. I know it's it's sort of trendy, which makes it not cool. I mean, in a way, you know. I, <laughs> but I mean, yeah,
0: you're like a hipster drinker. Yeah,
1: not the reason. I actually like the taste of it. I first had it at a convention, a VoucherCon, I think three years ago. Um, There's this little bar in Indianapolis, and um, two of our hosts were big rye fans. I mean, here, try this rye. I'm like, okay, you know, try anything once, and uh, really, just you know, fell in love with it. And it makes it's great for mixing kind of old fashioned cocktails. It was before Prohibition, the go to mixer, you know, base spirit for cocktails. So, Uh, but every hipster now drinks it. It's kind of lame to admit that.
0: Yeah. So would you would you ever consider opening a bar?
1: Oh geez, no! I have the business sense of like a homeless man. Yeah, I, just no way. I uh, <laughs> wouldn't work.
0: That's it. Okay, so your drinking's private. You're like the Hemingway thing going.
1: Yeah, I'll mix cocktails for friends, and it, it's a lot of fun. Like, I, you know, um, on New Year's Day, I make some cocktails for my friend Ed and his family, and you know, it can be pretty busy. But but professionally, nah, it's more of a hobby. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, let's get into your writing. Um, how you were pretty young when you started writing, correct?
1: Uh, I guess. Yeah, I guess my first like quote, professional job being paid for it when I was 19, you know, that was journalism. So kind of young.
0: So what um, advice would you go back and give yourself?
1: You know, now, I mean,
0: now that you, you know, cleared that, you know, that hurdle of four zero.
1: 0 I, I, Thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate that, Amber. <laughs> it
0: is. I'm going I'm, to, I'm, trust me, you're, you're older than me by six months. I'm going to go with that.
1: Please do. Um, now my advice myself would be this: write more. Like, I think I... The key to becoming good, I think, is getting a lot of words out of your system and kind of learning your craft just by doing it. You know, read your eyeballs out and write your fingers off. And I, you know, I wrote a lot and kind of had some time in years where I didn't write as much fiction and, you know, went back and forth. And I I kind of wish I would sort of pursued it harder, you know, earlier on. And I could have maybe, you know, had a first novel published maybe a little earlier or maybe not, or just been a better writer by the time I hit 40, you know. But I think that's the biggest thing you can do is just write and keep writing, even though it may not be great, and it probably won't be, but at a certain point, you know, you learn learn the craft.
0: Awesome. So, um, when it comes to your novels, um, well, is that how is that how you um, let me your evolution was? Did you go from journalism to novels, or from journalism to comics?
1: Actually, way back when, when I was, you know, a teenager, I wrote you know short stories, horror stories, you know, and that led me oddly to journalism because I wanted to be like you know Stephen King or Clive Parker when I grew up. And I knew I couldn't. I mean, I was, I was smart enough to know that I couldn't make a living at it, like, out of out of high school, you know? <laughs> so right, I yeah. a trade or something. So I, I thought journalism, I could learn how to write, uh, maybe beat some bad writing out of my system and make some money and, like, always, you know, write fiction on the side. So that's kind of what drew me into it. And the surprising thing was I kind of loved journalism. I fell in love with it and had a great time with it and a really, you know, fun career. But fiction was always kind of that first love, and I was really happy to go back to it, you know, and, or at least... Now I've been lucky enough to do it full time for four years with you know novels and comics and other odd things and it's it's I'm, I'm truly lucky I'm not sure how long it'll last and you know uh, these things you, you can't predict but um, it's been great fun to be doing that full time.
0: Did you have um, a full manuscript at all when you started to to find an agent?
1: I did. It's funny. I the I summer of '98. I um I started a lot of novels over the years. Like I, I got as far as maybe you know twenty pages or even fifty pages, and they kind of you know I lost interest and they fell apart. And uh, I, I swore over the summer of '98, just sit down every day, do a thousand words, until you have a book length thing done. You know, just finish right. something, even if it sucks, just at least prove to yourself you can do a, you know a book length thing. And I did it, and at the end of it, it, it wasn't great, but it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, and I worked on it, you know, a little bit more, and at the same time, I, I uh, was part of a listserv um, called Rara Avis, it's like mystery and hard world fans talk back and forth, and one guy on there foolishly mentioned he was an agent, and I thought, that's the guy, <laughs> <laughs> so I you know, just emailed him out of the blue and said, hey, I work for this magazine, I have this book I wrote, any chance you want to see any of it, you know, and being gracious he said yeah sure send me the you know a synopsis in the first couple you know pages whatever and i did and we kind of hit it off and he kind of saw that it wasn't you know horrible you know and it, was, it was worth working with and we worked on it for a year that book uh, a lot of great notes and he kind of taught me a lot about you know what makes a novel work and you know what slows it down so yeah i guess i had a book finished and i approached an agent but what helped me there to be honest is i had a job you know working for a magazine and i think i helped him in my agent's eyes my you know, this potential agent in showing him I was like not just some guy from you know, you know out in the back alley somewhere. You know right. I actually had a job right. writing professionally or you know or editing professionally. That that gave me I think a little bit of an edge. But the book, you know, he liked the book genuinely, and it later it was finally published as Secret Deadman You know and that was my first book, and uh, but it took like five years to see the light of day.
0: Well, that's the reason that I wanted to ask that in particular is because I find that when I attend panels, the agent question comes up so often by audience members and the very first thing that the professional up on the panel will say is, Well do you have a book? Right. And the, the answer is no. And so it's like people seem to have this I don't know, this anxiety over the agent process before they even have a finished product.
1: Oh yeah. They should have the anxiety over the writing process first, you <laughs> know, finish something. Because uh, there's, I, I'm pretty sure there's very few agents who will take on, you know, a short story writer. There are always exceptions. There are really genius sure. short story writers, but for the most part, you know, they want to shop around a book. Um, and you have to have it done. They, they won't like take a partial, you know, the potential. They really want to see the finished product.
0: And how did you manage to deal with the, you know, did you have a rejection process? I mean, you had an editorial process, but you had an agent. Right away, you didn't have to like send out fifty submissions and get fifty rejections. Yeah, I was
1: I was, I was lucky. It's funny. I, at the time, I, I didn't realize how lucky I was. But I, I sent, I kind of had my agent search was two people, then the, my agent who's still my agent now, David Hill Smith, and I actually sent my book somewhere else in a blind like you know query like here here's what I did and heard nothing back. You know, but yeah. David took me on pretty fast. And I realized that's you know lucky. Usually you go through a lot of you know waiting, a lot of rejections in a lot of places. Um, what but. The rejection came later <laughs> once, once we uh, put it in fighting shape and we sent it out into the world, in the publishing world. I think it was early, yeah, like March of 2000, we kind of sent it out to a bunch of publishers. And there were a lot of kind of promising, like, near near misses, near hits. One editor kind of liked it but couldn't, like, get her bosses to sign off on it. And it was all that kind of death by three, in, you know, a few inches at a time kind of thing. Right. I was, you know, it went so badly. You're so excited. And it's like, in the end, it just didn't work out. You know, we just couldn't sell it. It was cross-genre. Back in two thousand, that wasn't you know a, a thing uh, too much, and you know I put it aside and I, I did some nonfiction books with my agent, but that was the time was soul crushing. You know I was like God, I, I suck. You know this is horrible, but um, I guess I got confidence back years later. Just you know I, I refused to give up writing fiction. I just kept doing it. Um, so.
0: Would you would you still do it if nobody read it? If you didn't have a single sale, would you still do it?
1: Absolutely. It's funny. I right before I sold like my second book, The Wheelman, to St. Martin's Press, kind of my my first you know real official deal, you know with an advance and everything. Um, I kind of said out loud like, even if I write twenty books and no one reads them and they're unpublished and they're in a trunk that my grandkids find someday, you know <laughs> that's fine. You know I have to do it anyway. It's what I like doing. So and the moment I said it out loud, it's almost as if like the fates heard me and said, okay, cut the kid a break. Let them, you know, let them try it. <laughs> but yeah, um, so I mean, you have to write for yourself, but I think you have to do it for the fun of it, no matter what, because you, you you can control nothing in the, in the publishing world except your own book. You can control that to the nth degree.
0: Have you ever considered um, just taking on the self-publishing route, or have you, do you just see too much advantage or disadvantage?
1: You know, parts are really appealing. I mean, the control, the control part, honestly, is appealing, and you know, potentially, you know, you could make more money than the traditional publishers cut. But I think, I mean, I personally, I don't think would ever do that because you have to be really like, wear a bunch of hats that I'm not good at, you know, marketing, design, you know, okay. editing yourself. I think you, everyone always needs an editor. Uh, so certain people who do it and do it well, I think are, are really brilliant at wearing these all these hats. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I'm just one of those guys who wants to, you know, focus on the story and have the professionals, you know, be part of a team to put on a book.
0: Have you had any problems with um, the the discourse that seems to go on with Amazon sales?
1: What in terms of what? um...
0: There's um, I guess there's different percentages. Some people are finding um, situations where ebook sales have to be exclusive to certain vendors. That sort of situation where if you have it on, for example, like I don't know, on Amazon, you're not allowed to put it on some other platform like you know the iPad because it's got to be in the Kindle store. Have have you? had to see that, or is that just something that's outside your reach because you have a publisher?
1: Exactly, and publisher deals, those kind of things the deals. I mean, I think for a while there, I was really pissed off at Amazon a couple years ago when they, uh, at one point, removed all St. Martin's titles over a a squabble. I mean, so one day I woke up, and my books were gone from Amazon. I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. And it was out of my control, and it wasn't my fight, but it was was sort of, you know, that's when I thought, what the hell's going on? There's a weird war going on, you know, and um, but for the most part, I'm kind of shielded from those sort of battles um, but you know they, you know big you know publishing you know uh, troubles do hit home I mean borders they folded last year and they used to sell a lot of my books you know and I it was a huge hit you know for me and my kind of stuff I right when they, they went down
0: yeah how many you do you like to um, usually go around and make bookshop appearances I noticed you did the, you know the book tour last year right um, you know but do you have a preference between the big box stores and the indie stores? Because I, I noticed you're, you're very strong with your indie pop, uh, retailers. Oh,
1: yeah. I almost always like prefer to go to an indie store. I mean, only because I've you know, built relationships with people over the years there and kind of know certain people. And it, it's just more fun. It's like hanging with friends you see once or twice, you know, once or a couple of years and talk books and nerd out. Uh, versus, you know, the big box signings I've done are more me at a table, giving bathroom directions. <laughs> you know, to be honest, there, you know, sometimes you sell a book, but I, I hate like selling my own stuff. I'm the worst at it. I can't talk, you know, I'm just not good at saying, Hey, come over here. Let me chat you up. And there's some friends of mine who are so great at it. I'm not one of those people.
0: And, but I remember asking you one time about Comic-Con and you said nobody wants to go, you know, see a writer at a table for
1: Yeah, for I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You feel useless. I mean, all the artists are doing awesome stuff, you know, and it's like, they come to you online, and, what can you do? I'm like, I can write you a panel description, you know. <laughs> um, I do feel kind of useless. I mean, panels are, are one thing at cons. It's fun. You feel a little useful talking about, you know, a certain storyline or something. But, you know, for the, the hardcore con experience of having an artist do a, you know, sketch for you, you know, writers can't really do that. Right. So I feel very really yeah. useless. So I usually go off, dejected and go drink somewhere.
0: Although I have to say I saw, I saw Holly Black one time. And she was really great. I had, you know, my sketchbook that I, you know, I collect all these Comic-Con sketches in. Right. And I, you know, she took it and she wrote a riddle inside it for me and signed it. And I thought that was really clever. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'll steal
1: so, that. That's good. <laughs>
0: so there. So do that. Or write down a drink recipe in somebody's book. There you go.
1: Or a dirty limerick. I'll do that. Yes.
0: <laughs> there you go. And I want 10%. You got it. <laughs> So let's talk about um, so a little bit about your Charlie Hardy series because we've got um, two out already and right. Point you to somewhere in the process. Right. So uh, now his character, Charlie's character, seems really transparent along the lines of we know exactly what we're getting into when we read about his adventures. I mean, he's very Steve McQueen, Bruce Willis, you know, Stallone. He's all of these things in one. right. The, the unkillable male action hero but what you also balance that with is you've got really strong women in the novels and also you know you are the writer for birds of prey in DC comics which is an all-female team
1: right
0: so what i want to know is you know where do you find influences for you know black canary or starling or the you know the women that show up in the hardy series
1: well, actually, I, I, I tend to watch women. I'm kind of creepy that way. I'll just watch them, and stalk them. And no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I I think you know. I just I mean, writers do sort of are guilty of you know, uh, not stalking, but observing carefully. You know, and your your eyes are open, keep your ears open. It's the best way to learn about people and how they behave. And I, I I've been lucky. I've had you know strong women in my life. I think you know, um, lately my my daughter, she's a strong personality. I mean, I kind of write birds of prey for her. <laughs> it's like kind of think of what who, what who would she want to read about and what would she gravitate towards and you know not have these heroes be you know over sexed up you know uh, back cases more you know genuine, you know women with real problems and real in humor and all the, the whole full spectrum of you know of concerns and emotions and, and friendship and things so I kind of keep her in mind you know um, the novels not so much she's not allowed to read those until she's like my age 40 or 50 even <laughs> but, but yeah I don't know it, it's it's um I don't like, I don't, I never kind of stop myself and think, oh boy, I'm writing I'm a, a woman now. I better tread carefully. I just, it's a character. The character, you know, comes to life in different ways. Um, and I, I like writing strong female characters, you know, um, often the fe- you know, female characters in my books are more talented and stronger and, you know, and, and, and sharper than the, the guys. The guys are kind of screw-ups.
0: I always felt that way that, um, uh, particular writers from the Joss Whedon creations because they've been television film and right. comics um i always felt that brian k vaughn did a great job with female characters oh yeah and and matt wagner matt wagner to me is, is one of the greatest um who do you do you ever look towards somebody and specifically say you know i really like the way this person handles character development and
1: oh sure um, yeah i mean actually one that comes to mind is greg rucca you know he, he has great um characters especially female characters he's kind of a well, you know a role model um, with superhero books too, especially. You know, I've been reading his stuff since his uh, Batman stuff from, I guess, now twelve years ago. Even when he kind of first started doing uh, Detective Comics and uh, other things. You know, he's a role model. Um, you know, guys like you know Warren Ellis, um, Mark Miller. It just you know, just how you know I, you always look to those who come before you to sort of you know see how they handle certain characters. And characters are key. You know, they really are. A lot of this you know, plot grows from character. To my stuff. I mean, I always think about, you know, who someone is and what's the worst possible thing that could happen to them and how will they handle it? You know, kind of I think a testing thing, if that makes any sense. Like for well, Charlie, you know, for Charlie, he's like, he's, you know, a burnout house sitter who drinks too much. He's always he wants to do is watch movies and pass out. What's the worst thing that could happen to him? Well, having to save some home
0: people. invasion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's kind of, you know, and even birds of prey, you know, these kind of uh, people, these, these, these heroes who have a lot of baggage. Like, what's the worst? He was the worst kind of villain who could mess with them, you know? And that's kind of how I follow, you know, the plot in the series. Well,
0: continuous through the Hardy series is um, you have your, your super villains come really from an agency, from the accident people, but primarily Charlie's nemesis is this female character that you named Man, M-A-N-N. Right. So, you know, it's like not only you have a play on words, but you have this female who does every every single thing possible to destroy who he is. <laughs> and why, I mean, like, in the most creative and inventive ways possible. Um, and sometimes he does it to himself. Oh, yeah. But um, Which is just one of those things that you, you fall into there. So why did you make Charlie's nemesis um, a man? I mean, you know, a man character that's female, actually.
1: You know, it's funny, that I mean, that joke is kind sort of hits a few levels. The obvious joke is, you know, oh, haha, ha man, it's a woman, ha-ha. But also, also there's this thing in the accident people, that's her team of killers, that they kind of they're almost like fake movie production people. There's always a director and there's always an assistant director, you know, and a props guy, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they always name themselves in the culture of the accident people, they name themselves after real life directors. Like there's a De Palma, there's presumably a you know, a you know, a Romero somewhere. And with her I thought, you know, Anthony Mann, the classic, you know um, you know, the Western and crime uh, director, all, and as well as Michael Mann, you know, both spelled with two N's. And I thought, you know, maybe she she nod to that, you know, and, you know, she that's not her real name. Her birth name is something else, but she picked that to identify herself. And at one point in the book, I think she even says, acknowledges, like, yeah, I, I picked man, you know, to, to, the, to tell the world, I'm the man, you know, fuck you. <laughs> you know, right. such so of I... her own identity she takes on. Um, but yeah, in terms of Trello, you know, I think it's funny. He is like the action heroes from the eighties, but except for one thing, he's not really talented. He's not really good. I mean, the only skill he has is not dying. I mean, he can like, you know, in a pinch, so he can sort of scramble out of something, but he's not like, you know, Rambo. He's not even a Bruce Willis where he's has some skill, a skill set. He's kind of a screw up. My kind of hero. <laughs> um,
0: when you're working on the, on the novels, are you, are you actively scripting the comics as well, or do you actually dedicate, you know, a month at a time, like, okay, I have to crank out, you know, four issues of Birds of Prey, and then I can get back to point-and-shoot, or, you know, what's your, or while point-and-shoot's off at the editor, you're, you know, how does it work?
1: I multitask like crazy. I go back and forth on, you know, like, the past year I've done, I was month period with three books in a row, but I was also doing comics at the same time, and it's almost like uh, going back and forth between a marathon run and a few sprints, you know, here and there, and you know, comics have their own set of deadlines, and there's script deadlines and you know proofing deadlines. But my goal every day is, I think, to write, and this is my I shoot for. And I sometimes exceed it, sometimes don't, you know, fail miserably. But if I do like a thousand words of you know fiction prose and like five script pages, I'm happy. I'm a happy guy. I'm like, wow, okay, I did both. I divide my day up into sections, you know, um, and sometimes though I have to push aside the fiction and just crank on a, on a script because it's due. And sometimes, on the tail end of a book, I'll push aside some comics as long as I can to focus on fiction. But for the most part, going back and forth all the time.
0: Um, how do you handle writer's block? I mean, it happens to everybody,
1: doesn't it? My, yeah, it does. I, yeah, to varying degrees. I, my favorite uh, story was Mickey Spillane. People ask him how he avoided writer's block. And he says he looks at his bills, you know. And <laughs> that inspires <laughs> got to get this done. And that's kind of true. But, I'll, you know, I, I think I, having a, for me, having a word count I want to hit helps. Because I think, as long as those thousand words appear on the screen somehow, you can always go back and fix them. You know, you don't have to worry about them being a thousand golden words. So that helps me through. It's a relief You know I put a thousand words on the screen. That's okay. They don't have to be good. <laughs> it just hit my goal, and I can always go back and fix it. Um, but yeah, sometimes you know, I think sometimes also your your brain's not into it. And I've learned to give myself permission to sort of take some mental downtime. And if I do that. And come back to it; it goes much faster.
0: Do you ever? Do you actually have time between projects, or
1: yeah, it, just uh, it doesn't feel feel like that? But I do. <laughs> you know, I have you know some breathers. More my, my breaks are more, more like I, okay. I think okay, I have a few hours. I can sort of just not think about work for a while and do something else, or you know, weekend and stuff with the kids. And uh, I try and, you know do more of that as for breathing room. Whereas for a while there, I was guilty of rolling from one thing to the next, and it's one big blur of work. And that's not good for anybody.
0: So what kind of stuff do you do when you're in between?
1: Uh, you know, I hunt and stalk people to kill on the street, I pick a person at random, and I'll follow but, them. And...
0: Particularly women.
1: Right. You know, or, or children. You know. Okay. Uh, sometimes, but it's not that, I'm uh, you know, I, I'm a big movie guy. I love watching movies. I read. You know, it's just boring. Um, and when it's warm out, my biggest, you know, th- this is lame, but my biggest thrill is I like the grill. I like burning meat on a grill. <laughs> I know to a vegetarian like yourself, that sounds abhorrent, but that's kind of what I do.
0: That's okay. I'd, I'd like you burn some veggies on the grill for me. Throw, throw <laughs> a corn on the cob for me.
1: I can grill some meat and for you. I just, yeah, but I do love like awesome. the, the whole process because it's so unlike writing. It's like you're tending a fire. You're just sort of thinking about cooking meat, and it's just, you know, a nice way to unplug from words.
0: I have, I have a grammar question. I don't know if this is really grammar, but it's more of just sentence structure question. I... Was thrilled to hear Joe Lansdale confirm something for me that one of my former journalism professors had said, which was, for the most part, the word said is all you need in dialogue. That you don't need to get foofy and, you know, add too many adverbs or change it to, you know, replied and rebutted. And, you know, I mean said is enough Where, you know how do you find that you you sway on that
1: totally agree I think said is like an invisible word and in a good way it's just sort of like like it quotation marks you know that's there to tell the reader who's saying what adding to it I mean I think there's always exceptions but for the most part all you need is said you know because uh, like what you know, I think it was either Lansdale or maybe even I think Stephen King in his book on writing said you know the actual dialogue should carry that you know that adverb not the adverb you know if you're, seeing, instead of saying you know I'm going to kill you, he said menacingly, make the quote itself the dialogue menacing. You know, I'm going to rip your skull off and you know eat your eyeballs. That's pretty menacing. <laughs> have, like, <laughs> have he said menacingly? They can just that, that carries. It, you know, so that's great advice. And going further, you know, going back to the postman always rings twice. James Kane he even caught all the saids Like they're 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 gone. You don't see a, you know hardly any, any of them, and it still works. People know who's saying what, and it's all it's focused on the dialogue. And it's brilliant. So I'm, I'm, I'm totally in, in uh, Joe Lansdale's camp there.
0: Now let's talk about environment. When you are working with, um, for example, with Birds of Prey, mm-hmm. DC Universe has a lot of fictional cities, and then in your novels, you know, you're fine with basing things in Los Angeles and in Philadelphia. So when do you, you know, opt? For one or the other, and, and what's the decision making there?
1: Good question. Because um, place is a big deal to me. I I opt for real places all the time, unless I have to and go to a made up city. Like if I and Gotham, I have to. You know, Gotham's made up city. I have to set things there. That's fine. You know, I feel like I've I have a beat on Gotham for the most part. I don't write about a city unless I've actually been there. You know, or at least know enough about it to it, it feels real to me. Then, um, There's a brilliant crime writer, Ed McBain sets this great police uh, series called The 87th Precinct in a fictional New York City. And while I love the writer and love, you know, what he does, I can't read them. Because to me, I, I'm always thinking, oh, it's a fake New York City. And I try to translate, you know, the fake neighborhoods, and it just drives me crazy. Um, even science fiction, I'm not a big fan of, like, made-up worlds. And I kind of want, like, it, things to be set on Earth or the moon or some, someplace I know exists. Yeah, which may be a failure of my imagination, but I kind of I just like being grounded in you know a, a real place. How about you? Do you like? Can you go back and forth?
0: I, I do. Um, sometimes like you said, it's for the familiarity. I like to be able to describe things in legitimate landmarks. Yeah. And say you know seven miles east of the the pond, you know, is, is this? But you know, on the other hand, creating a world because I just did something. That has some sci-fi element to it. Actually, a steampunk story, and that's where there's almost too much freedom. Yeah. Like I can I can talk about you know a spaceship coming down and and landing in this arena. Well, where's this arena? Is it in the Meadowlands? I mean, you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right.
0: You know, it's so there's it, it feels free, but then at the same time, you know, the editor will get back and be like. You know, you need to scale back.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel like, to me, I think if if it feels real to me, I can sort of little details sneak through and are enough to kind of sketch a world instead of having to create it wholesale, you know, and I guess when I'm reading a book, I'm not a big fan of like endless pages of description of this new crazy world. I kind of want to just have a few lines, if if that, saying, you know, he ran down a a street in Brooklyn. I I got Brooklyn then. Cool. I know what it looks like, you know, (laughs) I'm set. No need for description.
0: Well, what the the great, greatest thing, let's face it, about being in a real city is that we can do things like the David Goodis tour.
1: Oh yeah, oh. Help and
0: me. and you know, and I want the the Dwayne Sporzinski tour.
1: <laughs> when I'm dead, maybe we'll have that. It'll be a very <laughs> short tour and kind of miserable. But um, no, I, I that's exactly it. I love, I mean, I love you know when writers set books in real places, going to those places. I, as you know, like the Goodis thing, Goodis is great because all his books in Philly. He went to these corners, you know, and you can still see these places, and it's fascinating. So that's why I love, you know, Chandler does the same thing. Uh, a lot of LA writers, you know, Bukowski is always writing about the places he is, and uh, New York as well. And I think I like that about Philadelphia because it's underrepresented, except for goodness. There's not few people setting things here, you know. In comics too, there's very few comics set here, at all. Right. At so.
0: Right. Well, yeah, I was I was actually really surprised um, when I had read Firestorm, and it was in Pittsburgh. <laughs>
1: Really? Oh, wow.
0: I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like, they're, you know, hearing them talking about Pittsburgh, I was like, wow, I, I know where that bridge is.
1: See, I, see, I love that. I love when I'm traveling somewhere new, I'll try to find, like, books that are set there to, like, you know, not as a guide, but, like, just to feel the vibe of the place, you know. And if I know comics are set at a certain place, um, you know, I'll definitely, you know, give, check them out before a trip.
0: So what can you tell us about your your other branch of from the novels that you've got the, um, was it level 26? Right. Now, is that what the Black Box project is?
1: Yeah, it's related in a weird way. Like, I wrote these uh, three books with Anthony Zeicher, the guy who created CSI. Um, it was his ideas, the, he owns the book. I was, you know, his writer, you know, for hire. Uh, we collaborated on these three books in the series. And after that was over, uh, in the fall, this is this is past fall, they made a deal with Black Box TV. Now, Black Box TV, have you heard of these guys?
0: I've, I've briefly heard about it through Dirk Manning, who's doing a project for them as well.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's like these uh, short YouTube like uh, horror suspense stories, you know, they do. And it started Lily, some guy in his garage making these cool little horror movies, and it built a nice viewership. But this new deal is kind of a new incarnation of Black Box TV. They're partnering with Zyker. And there's a series called Anthony's Lacker Presents, where he sort of presents little crime and suspense shorts. So, long story short, they asked if I want to pitch ideas, and I thought, why not? I pitched them ideas, and time went by, and they kind of liked one. So that became, the, the, the I think, the, the first of the series, um, debuting in late April. So I wrote a short film, uh, and then they shot it in early February, and it's going to be out end of April, which is, you know, kind of crazy how fast it happened. I'm so used to, you know, rejection and, you know things being delayed or canceled or, you know, <laughs> the usual.
0: But, yeah, speaking of how long the process is, what's going on with, you know, when your book, like, The Blonde is optioned? I mean, is it going to be seven, eight years from now we might see it?
1: I'm hopeful it's sooner than that because it, it feels like a long time, but I've learned how long the process takes. In either, like, a movie, a, a book is optioned and, bam, it's out, like Hunger Games, because there's a huge audience. It's, like, got momentum, you know, and let's just do it. Twilight, same thing. Uh, the other route seems to be a book is option and there's many years of development. And, you know, there's a script phase, there's attachments, you know, and The, the Blonde, it's been really great um, aside from how long it's taken. You know, and that's no one's fault. It's more, you know, there's a great script, there's a producer, um, there's, you know, the, the star, Michelle Monahan, she's the one who optioned it for her own production company. And, you know, recently it, it's felt more and more real, but I always hesitate to say, you know, that it's going to happen. <laughs> At any moment, the floor can drop out from under you and it can even be stalled or something. But of all the books that have been option, that's the one that feels closest to happening.
0: Do they have... Um, well, let me put it this way. Do they own like exclusively the rights to it or do they come back to you with the screenplay and and sort of get your stamp of approval?
1: That's a great question. How it works is, like, it's called an option. They kind of rent your book for a while. They'll say, okay, I want to buy an option on your novel, you know, Amber, for a year or 18 months. So I'm going to rent your book, and we're going to have somebody, you know, do a script, you know, based on it, and we're trying to try to shop it around and make a deal happen. And either it happens or it doesn't happen, and they can either re-up the option or, you know, or pass and move on. And I've happened, that's happened, and all those scenarios have happened to me before, you know. People have, like, the blonde has been uh, re-upped, I think, three times now because it's getting closer and closer. You know, they have faith in it and want to keep going. Um, I've had a book, you know, a book where it's one option, period, and they kind of thought, no, we can't do it. That's it. We'll walk away, you know. So so the the option is, like, usually a modest amount of money, you know, to, like, rent your book for a while. When they actually greenlight it and make the movie and start it, then they actually buy your rights. They buy the book. And that can be, you know, good money if it happens. Has but been, do they? Yeah, so but there's you no. Know <laughs>
0: there's no. Great. There's no guarantee that you're gonna. You don't get like a screenwriter.
1: Oh no, no. I mean, especially if, you know, if it, you know, someone else adapts your book, you, you know, you, you're guaranteed a credit usually, saying based on the book.
0: Based on the you no-buying, know, right?
1: Yeah, but um, there's no guarantee. You have no. You know, once you sell your rights to your book, they have it and they can do whatever they want with it, as far as you know, making a movie out of it. Um, which is fair. You know, they're they're buying it. You know, your book will always be your book, but they're buying the right to make a movie out of your book and they'll do whatever they want to do. And you hope it's good. <laughs> so that's the process. It's been a learning process. Cause it's all, it was all new to me and I'm learning more and more, you know, uh, as I go through this, but I've also learned, it's a lot of waiting, you know, and just uh, my mode tends to be keep working, keep writing, don't focus on it. Don't worry about it. So.
0: Okay. So let's talk about some of the, some of the birds of prey development. Um, how far into the future? Oh, here.
1: Wow, that's lovely.
0: Traffic driving by. Yeah.
1: Is that a plane? There's like a warplane coming down. <laughs> I know. <right?
0: laughs> Shh, that's my secret layer.
1: Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um,
0: how far into the future are you? Are you scripting for, for birds?
1: Right now, I'm writing issue 11, and thinking about the plot for 12 vaguely. So I think six came out last month, and good. seven's out this month. So yeah, I'm like, what's that? Four? I'm bad at math. Four issues. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Point two. Yeah, I mean, it's just good. It's good pace. I've been hitting my deadlines, which is good, you know. Um, Give the artist enough time and enough time for proofing, so it's been good.
0: And how um, descriptive do you get uh, when you talk about your panels to your artist? I mean, I know that you just had an artist change for birds, so do you feel that you get... More descriptive with a new person, or do you just sort of trust the the powers that be that you can just say uh, black canary enters the room, or do you go on and on about what the room is?
1: You know, that's a really cool question. I mean, that's a question I used to ponder myself before I started in comics. How much do you do? There's like the Alan Moore example where it's like pages and pages of descriptions, and it's right. like you know I've seen Mark you know scripts from Mark Miller where it's like as terse as haiku. <laughs> it's like really nothing yeah. going on. Um, I try to balance it where I kind of to me, I want to describe it enough if it's important to the story, you know, because the artist is having fun too. It's, it's it's their their story as well, and I don't want to you know tell them how to what camera shots to set up or how they should you know look or except for if it's important to the story, you know, that's when I think that's, that's sort of my turf to tell them enough to make the story make sense, and they're free to bring up you know and, and add to it whatever they want to add to it. And after a while, I think with new artists, you get into a rhythm like. You know, Jesus, Saiz, and I, for birds, were in a nice rhythm after a while. Um, actually, pretty quickly, we fell into a rhythm, and he, I I guess gave him enough what he needed, and he would astound me with how he sort of would pick up the, fa- the great facial expression, you know, for a character. Whereas,
0: it, was, it was it was a great, uh, the first thing I noticed.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm not overly descriptive. I just kind of, you know, I, a little nudge like, you know, Starling looks, looks angrier, Canaria looks sort of confused. I mean, little things, and he just makes him so expressive, and it, it just fits so well that... That's a great marriage, you know, you, know, you know, a team working like that. Um, but, yeah, I try not to go overboard, because I don't want to, like, step on a, an artist's fun or their part of the storytelling.
0: Did he come up with the costume redesigns, Jesus?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think it was a whole process where they were re- redesigning all the characters, and he, um, that was him, I think, I'm pretty, you know, I think Jim Lee obviously had, you know, input and feedback and maybe he had some examples he, sh- you know, shot back and forth, but it was largely driven by Jesus,
0: how did um, the evolution of Poison Ivy come into play? Because first of all, she wasn't, she's not a bird themed, you know, character. Neither was Katana, right. but um, you know, but she's obviously nature based, and this version of her has this very organic. Um, just, growth. I don't know how to how else to describe it, but like her body literally comes to life as opposed to her controlling plants. She yeah. becomes the plants.
1: That's actually a plot element. You're going to see more of that. I mean, it's, it's on purpose. In the very beginning, I kind of want to give her something different. And um, she's kind of wearing a sort of bio suit she has. And it hasn't explained yet where she got it or what how it developed. And uh, that's actually the arc that's coming up, I guess, issues 10 and 11 especially get into that. Uh, more Ivy stuff. Kind of why she joined the team. Uh, Her agenda is revealed a little more, but I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, she's the most powerful of the birds, I think, because she has this cool, you know, um, suit that works in tandem with her powers. Uh, But yeah, I can't really say too much about it, you know, without ruining story, but good eye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, obviously the costumes were something that I noticed right away. I mean, at first I was, I saw, you know, some of the first images of Black Canary, and I was like, it looks like she's wearing a scuba suit with fishnets. And then as the book actually came out and hit shelves, yeah. from panel to panel, things changed uh, you know, a slight bit here and there. Now it, it seems like they've set on the design.
1: Yeah, I think so. And it's funny, you know, you'll see when in Travel Formant takes over with issue uh, nine, and the birds, it's the same uh, character design, I mean, the same design and costumes, but just Travel's style is so different from Jesus's, in, in, a, in a good way. I mean, he just, he draws, you know... Beautiful women and his styles is just so different, you know, less literal and more impressionist and just crazy, you know. It looks insane. <laughs> this is great.
0: So, uh, who designed Starling?
1: Uh, Jesus, you know, and was, we, we kind of co-created her. Um, there was a, a, you know, a, a void and they, they said, go up, create a new character. And um, it was his idea to do the, you know, the arm sleeve tattoos and kind of that rocket bully look. That was, he, you know, was loving that. And it kind of based on that kind of i built up her her background and kind of her abilities and what her deal was
0: so we can now that the the issue has already hit we've seen that that starlings uh has a girlfriend or an ex-girlfriend yes so was her sexuality discussed with editorial before you scripted that or
1: oh yeah from the very beginning um my editor at the time was uh janelle acelyn and it was pretty funny because we both were thinking the same thing but hadn't told each other you know like I'm thinking, well, maybe she's, you know, maybe Sterling's either gay or bi, you know, or um, and she was thinking kind of the same thing. Well, maybe she could be, you know, and we both at one meeting kind of both said, "Is she? Like, Do you think she?" And like, yeah, okay, that's you know, not make a big deal of it and not like have it define her, which I think would be a mistake, you know. Like, ooh, there's the wacky lesbian character, you know, that, that's that's not cool. I mean, it's 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 her, just be her, Um and that issue where she you know was revealed, that piece of her personal life was revealed that was the issue where all of their sort of personal lives were kind of revealed a little bit, you know, we kind of looked into all their 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 lives, so that felt the right place to do it. I do what did you think how it was handled? I mean, you know.
0: I thought it was handled gently. I thought it was, I thought it was nice to keep their, basically, yes, they're, they're a team and when you work, like, in any kind of work environment situation where you're not just alone, yeah, um, you do, you know, get to know each other's personal lives, but I thought in that issue, what, you know, what you had done was basically establish, you know, look, this their private lives are not part of their team. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, they'll be able to discuss it. I mean, Katana's off a rocker, so yeah. I think she's pretty openly discussed her her yeah. marriage, um, <laughs> if you want to call it that. And, um... You know, but that's one of those things where I've worked in every seemingly every environment I think possible because I've been in warehouses. I've been in cubicles, you know, and I've sat at a desk all alone. right. You know, but you know there's there's the camaraderie of I have to trust this person with my life. So you know yeah, it, yeah. They, need, they they need to you know they need to understand me
1: exactly. Um, yeah, the the, the the friendships are the more important thing to focus on, you know. Like, I think the core of the team is, you know, Canary and Sterling as far as their friendship, you know. And they have this, this you know, I think it's pretty pretty rock-solid, you know, um, you know partnering uh, with the add-ons. Like, Tana is a weird add-on, and Ivy is certainly a, a weird addition to the team. But there's still this, you know, this respect, you know, even if you disagree with each other or have, you know, You know, think each other are are weird. You still, you know, have their people have their backs. You know, Ivy will protect them, and she's demonstrated that time and time again. She has their backs. Um, and Batgirl, oddly enough, is like to me the the oddball still in the group. You know, she's sort of half in, half out. You know, I think she's there out of duty and friendship with, with Canary, but you know. She's like,
0: but she sort of made it clear in like issue one that she was not interested in being on their team, and then she came in.
1: Yeah, I think because she saw that you know Canary needed her, you know needed that, that you know some help, um, which is true. And you, know, you see, it's it's very you know tenuous, and that, that was all to me by design because it was, you know, for so many for so long, Birds was about Oracle as a center, you know, Canary and Huntress, and it's that's kind of you know with Oracle in the middle, we just totally changed that, you know, Oracle is no more, and Batgirl had her own book and. I kind of felt like Canary had to be the, the, now the new nucleus of this team, you know, and the you know the thing with her and Batgirl it's interesting to play around with, dramatically.
0: Well, it just seems like there's, you know, there it's approaching a line where we don't want it to be a second Batgirl book, right? Which is what happens a lot with Batman was, you know, it was the same situation. He was forever saying, "No, I will not join your Justice League." Yeah. But yet he would be in every episode. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. It, w- it won't be that. You'll see. There's th- things are, are are changing and you know evolving. But um, I can't say too much without ruining it. Um, but yeah. I, I mean, I don't have the tease last for like you know 40 issues. No, I'm not going to join your damn team. Here I am. You know, that's not that's not my, my purpose. You know, with that. Um, but it's interesting. She's a neat link to the Bat world. Um, you'll see in issue nine, which is the crossover. The whole uh, Bat books have the the the. the Talon crossover, you know, the Court of Owls thing. And you'll see the first meeting between, um, you know, Batman and the birds, which is funny, I think. That should be good. Dynam- what, what, Dynam-
0: what about, is there going to, can you tell us if Nightwing is even existing? Like, what's going on?
1: Um, In terms of birds?
0: Yeah, or Gotham, because I'm... i got really confused with the relaunch. Oh, like who, who even exists?
1: Not, you know, not in terms of, of birds, now. I mean, it's not, that's not, you know... Although I'm, you know, buddies with the writer Kyle Higgins, who writes Nightwing, and we've been, you know, trying to push for a crossover at some point or, a, you know, intersecting of storylines, but not yet.
0: Because right, at least he seems bird-themed.
1: So That's true. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it did bug me for a little while. Like, the, the team of characters, like, there's only, like, one bird here right now. <laughs> <laughs> I like, mean, all these birds. But, you know, Starling was, you know, there's another bird, and... Ivy, not at all, and Katana is definitely not a bird-themed, you know. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, she's cuckoo, so there you go. All right,
1: there you go. That's great. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs>
0: there you I just want 10%. <laughs> That's all, 10%? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, your other comic announcement was about Godzilla and infestation with IDW. Right. So, are you get, I mean, can we can we have a crossover then? Can Godzilla meet Gotham and stamp on it or something?
1: <laughs> I do wonder how what would happen, birds versus Godzilla, you know? Um, I wonder who would, who would best... I, don't, I think it'd be a draw, you know?
0: It, yeah, they'd they just chase him back into the bay.
1: Yeah, there'd be no definitive victories. They'd somehow trick him into, the, uh, into something, or open volcano or whatever, um, right. block of ice. No, it's, it's funny. Godzilla's is worlds different from birds you know or other comics I've done this is kind of different um, except for one thing it's you'll see it's a it's kind of a team book in a weird way not team team you know we got, um, it's a group of characters who kind of get together and decide to take down giant monsters that's sort of the, the you know high concept in quotes are,
0: the, are these American based
1: uh, all over all over all stripes of people Um I mean, it's uh, you'll see. It's you know, there's one central figure who is you know the, the typical badass action hero guy, but there's something different about him uh, and who he gathers on his team is kind of I think a little different from what we've seen in Godzilla movies or comics before. But we shall see. It's been fun though because I love horror and I love giant monsters and it's just badass.
0: <laughs> so that's like you you know you. Little boy Dwayne's dream come true.
1: Yeah, because, I don't know, did you grow up watching the Godzilla? Like, yeah, on? I was
0: scared. I was scared to death. I would They would uh, they would be on, and I would literally be in the next room peeking around the door jam to watch it because they scared me.
1: I'd be afraid sometimes, but I'd also, like, you know, pretend I was Godzilla and, and flip my brother over the couch, you know, to destroy him because we were both giant monsters, you know, and that I loved that stuff.
0: Um, well, we had the Godzilla, The it was, like, two feet tall or something like that, and it was really hard plastic, and... um would shoot his fist.
1: Oh, that's right. That's cool.
0: And that thing, ha- I can't believe I still have both eyes. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it was great when toys could be dangerous, um, you know, because that that fist, like, was just such a great projectile. Oh,
1: that's, that's awesome. I remember that. I didn't have that, but I remember that. I think friends of mine must have had that that figure. <laughs> that's cool. But yeah, it's, that's, to me, it's, it's our generation, you know, that kind of the 70s were a weird wasteland. The UHF stations had so much bizarre yeah. stuff, you know, I wanted to be the Bionic Man. I wanted to be Ultraman. I wanted to, you know, be Godzilla or fight Godzilla. Um, all this stuff that was, you know, this you know, I'm sure for both of us, it's just in, in, yeah, in background the background in thing. our heads. So that's the fun of it.
0: That's cool. That's cool. So, what, um, what last thoughts do you have for us? Anything that you need to. You
1: know, confess, like, get off my chest.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, where are the bodies? Did you, you know, what's your real name?
1: Uh, well, my real, real name is, uh, is actually, no, I can't tell you here. Oh, you'll find out soon enough. Okay. Uh, no, no, nothing. It's just, it's been fun. It's actually another comic project that I can't talk about because I'm, I've been sworn like to, to silence. So, and you're gonna punch me when you, you know, when I finally can speak about it that we couldn't talk about today. But I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. there's something else on, in, in the works that I've been working on for a while um, that's finally going to be announced very very soon
0: okay well that's good where can um, are you doing any conventions at all for panels and, and stuff
1: you know I, I, I kind of want to do hold, hold on to your chair there I kind of want to do wizard WizardCon this year yes um, so because I think for a few reasons and I'm hoping that you know I can you know be there for officially for a few things um and beyond that, I don't know. I mean, hopefully New York in the fall again and uh, San Diego. I don't know if I, you know, it's depends on a lot of circumstances. Like pulling it off, it's pricey, so <laughs> I'm yeah. going to pull it off.
0: But, do you, you know, if you plan on doing more of the, the bookshop stuff, the smaller, more intimate gatherings, what's your blog so people can keep track of
1: you oh sure yeah um, the blog is actually it's, it's simple it's uh, secretdead.com it'll take you to my blog because uh, Riz- Com doesn't work I had that for a while it's just, no one finds it it's too hard it's just too difficult yeah it's ridiculous
0: and of course you're on the twitter
1: I'm on the twitter as uh because my full name wouldn't fit no I'm kidding it's just easier it's my last name stops after the Y okay so, all right. Yeah. I I, you know, wish I'd been drinking. I would have been more lively, I guess, or had you know more obnoxious things to say. First.
0: Oh well, first then we'll minute. just do part two. We'll go to it.
1: <laughs> the dr- part two, the drunken episode. Yeah.
0: Good. It'll just be all
1: outtakes. Excellent.
0: Okay, Dwayne, Thanks for for joining me today, and we will definitely keep in touch and and whatnot, and and figure out what you're up to when.
1: <laughs> thank you, Ms. Amber, and thank you for having me on your your show.